Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Chester Twigg is the Global Chief Customer Officer of Johnson & Johnson, and under this title, he oversees J&J's global commercial strategy while maximizing growth and value within the company on a global level. It's a mouthful and a tremendous responsibility. Chester joined Johnson & Johnson from Procter & Gamble, where he spent over 25 years. At P&G, Chester led sales for a $20 billion global category that included baby, feminine, and family care products. He also ran the global AS Watson customer account. This role took him across the world, including all over the United States, China, India, Singapore, and throughout Europe. Chester holds an MBA in marketing and a Bachelor of Commerce and Economics from the University of Mumbai, India. He's a fascinating and incredibly accomplished person with a deeply global sensibility, and we were very honored to speak with him. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation, including the value of keeping a large company like J&J agile and why it's critical for keeping pace with market trends and consumer demands that are constantly changing at a very accelerated rate. We also dove into the challenges of deriving actionable insights from the vast amounts of consumer-related data that brands have access to nowadays. Today is an age when consumers expect personalized experiences, and Chester gets into how you can utilize your data to better deliver it to them. We also get into Chester's recommendations for the skills and mindsets that future generations of marketers need to have in order to remain competent and competitive in the brand workforce. And now, here is Chester Twig, Global Chief Customer Officer of Johnson & Johnson, in conversation with Lippy Taylor President Paul Dyer. Hi, everybody. This is Paul Dyer, President of Lippy Taylor, and I'm here today with Chester Twig, who is Global Chief Customer Officer for Johnson & Johnson. Hello, Chester. Thank you. Nice to be here. And thank you for joining us. We're very excited to get some of your insights here today. Uh, but I thought we would start out um, maybe pretty easy. Um, for people who may not know, how do you describe what a chief customer officer does? Interestingly, the chief customer officer role is new at J&J. It's not new in most uh, consumer goods companies, uh, but it does differ depending on the industry as well. In consumer goods in particular, it typically tends to be essentially the global head of sales, so responsible for bringing in the voice of the customer into the company, uh, defining the sales strategies, how we go to market, uh, the channels to, to cover and uh, the customers to win with, responsible for the top-to-top -top relationships with our key customers, the Walmarts, Carrefours, Tesco's of the world, and of course building the capabilities and skills of the you know, thousands of salespeople that uh, operate across the world. So how do you think about the sort of split priority of your customers, the Walmarts and Tesco's, and then the consumers they're trying to serve, and is there a pull-through of the consumer voice through that conversation, or is the emphasis primarily on the customer, the retail channel? So what we're trying to do is, is hit that joint value creation sweet spot, which is where the consumer, the end, end user of our products, the customer, the retailers that we mostly sell through, and the company, in our case GNJ, create value that is bigger than all three together. And uh, that's not always easy, and there's sometimes conflict of how you share the prize as well. But uh, you know, our focus is really about how do you bring into the, into the equation uh, not just the consumer but also the shopper because the consumer who uses the product can sometimes be different than the person who's buying it in the store or online. And uh, we try to be the experts in how that shopper makes their shopping behavioral decisions, uh, how the retailer can influence them to achieve that, and how we can therefore maximize that sweet spot. I like that idea of the sweet spot, you know, between consumer, shopper, right. customer, you know, manufacturer. You've been, you know, in this space and a leader in this space for many years. So how have you seen the um, customer's needs or maybe even just that sweet spot sort of shift over time or what maybe their expectations of a large company like a J&J? &J, how have they shifted over time? 
I guess the good thing of, you know, of a career that's about 30 years is you see a lot of change during that time. Uh, and I would say that change has always been a part of it, you know, whether it's the consumer or the customer, the retailers have been changing. Probably what's different right now is the speed of change is much faster than it's ever been before. So what we're clearly seeing is that uh, consumers' expectations are increasing more than ever before. I mean, they want the product right now at the best price and, you know, delivered to my my home so I don't have to worry with the shopping and things like that. Uh, so much more the immediate satisfaction. And retailers and manufacturers are trying to keep up with that pace of change, be able to meet those uh, both structurally as well as profitably, because that's the other challenge is how do you do that as consumers expect a cheaper product at a better price with better value, better quality, faster. Uh, we've got to meet those needs and we've got to make money doing it as well. So that brings in the intellectual challenge of how do you achieve that, which is the fun part of, of the job, I must say. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it. Yeah. Never a dull moment. Never a dull moment. So the the acceleration of, of consumer preferences seems to be, it's, you know, it's something on a lot of people's minds today, right? Um, ingredients seem to come in and out of fashion very quickly. New line extensions or new specialty kits or whatever, again, seem to be coming on and off shelf very, very fast. How do you stay ahead of that? How do you stay ahead of you know, those changing trends and make sure that you're actually keeping pace or even you know, setting the pace? Yeah, I mean, it is uh, both, I guess, an expectation on us to anticipate those changes, in some cases even invent those changes as well, uh, but of course keep track of what's happening. I mean, interestingly, sometimes, you know, in the past, for instance, we looked at some ingredients and thought, okay, this is now a trend. When you actually look at the Google searches on them, they've actually peaked and no longer the trend, and there's something new coming up that could be a trend, but may not be. And, and you've got to kind of place your bet on, is this uh, right for us or not? I think the other thing for a company like ours is that we want to do things based on science. So we're not just going to follow the latest fad out of the door. We need to know that that ingredient is really going to provide consumer a better outcome. Uh, we're in the, in, the, in the business of science and technology and, and ultimately better health outcomes for our consumers. So we don't necessarily follow, follow every trend out of the door. We will look at what could perhaps make sense uh, for us to develop a competitive advantage with that ingredient and, and then take that on. So we might have to pass a few that we don't believe is truly sustainable and is just, just a fad rather than a, than a real positive trend. It's, it's refreshing to hear that commitment to the science, um, especially for somebody who represents essentially what's, what ends up on shelf, right? Because it does feel like consumers are sort of maybe suckers sometimes, right? right. <laughs> so, so you, know, how, you know, how is it that you guys, I guess, are you seeing that consumers do still prioritize that, those science-based claims when they're at the shelf? Or are they becoming a little bit more fickle with that? I think the good thing about today is that consumers can actually go research things that in the past they had to kind of take a little bit for granted. The manufacturer's voice or, you know, what you said in your advertising or uh, what you had space for in your package uh, to communicate. Today, in fact, most of the younger consumers are actually quite... Uh, keen to understand more, do a little bit of background research and, and uh, of course, you know, uh, find out how this fits into what they're looking for. So that, of course, puts a, a onus on us as well to make sure that we are truly coming up with ingredients and uh, design aspects that meet those needs, but also deliver that outcome and not just, you know, follow the trend, as I, as I said earlier. So, it's a good thing. Consumers are more informed. You know, I think uh, in the past someone once said that, you know, the consumer's not a moron, she's your wife. Uh, well, today I think she's even smarter. And, and she really, uh, and he of course as well, I think put in the time. And they're more particular about the brand they use. They want to understand its purpose as well. And that's the other thing we're seeing is purposeful brands are, are much more connecting with today's consumers. So... 
I actually think the consumer for today is is a much more well-informed, intelligent, but also, you know, not just willing to take the manufacturer's voice on things. They want to do do their research, find out, be convinced that this is the right thing for them as well. And I definitely want to come back to the purpose um, aspect in just a minute. Um, one of the things you said in the beginning of that response was related to sort of you know, limited packaging space and what you can say on package. You know, then at the end, you were talking about how the manufacturer's voice may not be enough. And so we obviously believe in public relations and third-party endorsement, right? Getting a key opinion leader, for example, like a dermatologist for a skincare product to say this product works, you know, or a media outlet to sort of substantiate that the product works. But J&J has a lot of history and a lot of equity in being a science-driven company. Is it as important still to get a third party's voice or, you know, is that something that maybe rests more on challenger brands that don't have the equity of a J&J to, to call upon? Now, we, we believe in professional endorsement just as, as much as we've always done. We believe that it's great when we not only just make sure that our product meets quality and, you know, all the safety standards, but is also endorsed by professionals that know best. Uh, that these do. And, you know, the history of our brands have always been brands that got invented through science to really meet a consumer's need, whether it was Band-Aid, one of our very first products that we launched, or, you know, our Johnson's baby products, etc. And uh, we believe that the right professional endorsement, uh, you know, is critical to the success of the brands. And uh, you can't take it for granted as well. Consumers want to continue to know that that's continues to be the case. That's okay. My I know my grandmother and my mother said that, uh, you know, their doctor prescribed it, but uh, my doctor is not. So what's going on? And so we need to ensure that that long, thin thread of continuity continues. And uh, the red, the long red line of the, of the J&J products continues as well. So you, you, you mentioned purpose a minute ago. And obviously, um, that was in the context of consumers sort of supporting brands that have a clear purpose. Um, which can be hard sometimes for legacy brands or they've been around for a hundred years and maybe don't, maybe it's not as clear. Others, it may be completely baked into the brand. Um, just last week here in New York, Michael Sneed, your chief communications officer and your vice chairman, whose name is escaping me now. Joaquin. Joaquin. It <laughs> gave a, a, a speech here in the city on how um, you guys have sort of modernized the credo and interpreted the credo into your purpose of being a heart science and ingenuity driven company that essentially helps all of humanity um, live healthier, right? And that was the sort of the the work they were sharing here in in New York. So I'm curious now, as somebody who was not in that room, is it real? Do people feel it throughout the company, right? Is that purpose really, you know, kind of pulling through? Or is that something that just takes time in a company of your size? And you know what I mean? Like, how does it, how does something go from being on stage at that, you know, kind of a thing to really happening? That's something that I've been with the company a little over three three years. And uh, I've been frankly astounded by how deeply entrenched uh, the credo and the purpose of the company is in every every decision and how people operate. Uh, at first, you think, okay, maybe it's uh, what people say, but do they really believe in it and 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 uh, live into it? And I would say, whatever I've seen, it's it's been uh, tremendously embedded into the organization, and 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 that's credit to all the leaders that have been in the company over the years. Uh, it's also one of the reasons I was attracted to the company. I mean, uh, I came from a company which also had a strong purpose, value, and principles. One of the things I was looking for was a home that would uh, reflect those as well. And uh, I always thought it probably is challenging for a company to truly believe quite the same way. Uh, but I have to say it, 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 it really is the case. And the purpose that J&J is uh, defined of you know, using heart, science, and ingenuity to profoundly change the trajectory of health for humanity is... Well, there it, uh, is. Is, it is real. You just did that from memory. It's <laughs> a great testimony to, <laughs> yeah. to what the company is all about. And, and if you look back at the history, it, it's always been the case. So I think we are a bit lucky that our brands have always come out of purpose. They've come out of a true need to improve the life of that consumer. 
what we really have to make sure we keep doing is telling that story. Uh, because sometimes you can get a little bit complacent about, okay, the story is out there, consumer knows it, but we have a lot of new consumers, not just here, but all over the world. All of them don't know the story quite as well. Uh, and so it's incumbent on us to, to really tell that story and, and individualize it to the consumer because the consumer is also looking for a personal experience. So, okay, that's a great brand story, but how is it relevant to me individually in my unique situation? And I think the company is trying to build that as well. And what about with your customers? Do you feel like that's still, is it, when I mean, you mentioned consumers care, you know, about the purpose-driven um, brand, do the customers care as well? I, I, th I think actually the, the credo has been uh, great to, to talk with our customers as well, because A, the ginger credo is pretty well known in the industry. I mean, uh, you know, the Tylenol story and things like that have made sure that it's fairly well known. Our customers have seen that from the salespeople they meet every day, that they live into those values for the most part. And when they see, you know, differences, they actually raise it to us. It's like, well, I didn't think this was how you operated, which is great for us to then course correct because... We're a large organization. People can make mistakes, and uh, sometimes we get new people that may not embrace the the values quite the same way. So, you know, I think our customers hold us responsible because they, they know and seen that from us. There's a great line in the credo where we talk about the fact that we want to ensure that our customers and our suppliers make a fair return on their investment. So we actually, 75 years ago, called out that partnership aspect, the win-win that a lot of people over the last couple of decades have been talk, talking about. We talked about it 75 years ago. We put it in writing that, uh, you know, we would meet consumers' needs, patients' needs. We would also meet our customers' needs. So when sometimes you get into tactical negotiations with customers, I actually point to that. It's like, this is not, you know, something I can decide not to do. It's written into how we operate. And that sometimes, you know, gets that conversation to a different place, which is great. Which is great. Ten years ago or so, the idea of sort of coopetition became sort of popularized around the idea that you're cooperating with your customers, but in other ways you're competing with them, yes. right? Especially with the growth of private label. Now, we're in an era where you've got direct brands that seem to be a common enemy for, you know, sort of large brands like Johnson & Johnson's, as well as the retail customers that you partner with. I'm wondering, has that impacted the way that you're thinking about your coopetition, if you will, with your customers as you've got these other brands that are essentially just skipping the retail channel, sort of, you know, reshuffling the deck in some ways? The challenge kind of remains the same. It's trying to find that sweet spot and, you know, create joint value for our consumer, our customers and ourselves. It's getting more challenging. The statistic that you know, I often remind my team about is that when I started my career, uh, you know, and for the large part of my career, consumer goods industry was growing twice the rate of GDP. In the last decade, it's growing half the rate of GDP. So getting to that growth is a little bit more difficult than it was in the past. In the meanwhile, the barriers of entry have also come down. Anyone can start a little business. You know, you don't have to pay the the listing fees to get into a big retailer, you can create your own website or get onto an ecosystem and, and sell your product. Uh, you can target a few consumers, you don't have to have a big marketing budget. Us and our key customers definitely have that challenge of growth is less, there's other competitors for that same growth, and so we've got to work harder, more creatively together uh, to find that growth, uh, which again, it's not easy, but it's a lot of fun when you're both up against the same challenge. It's not an easy execution. Uh, the growth is out there. I mean, and if you have great brands like we do, which is definitely one of the things that a lot of small companies would, would love to have, you know, the history and the, the legacy of those brands, the deep equity that they hold in consumers' minds, uh, how do we leverage that to continue to bring the customer into the stores of our customers and have them buy the category and, and frankly, hopefully, more and more of our brands while they do that. 
but that's that means we've got to target that consumer better. We've got to sharpen our marketing. We've got to better understand what the consumer's needs are. At the end of the day, we're selling products which are not as exciting as what our young consumers are looking for in terms of you know technology or experiences or uh, you know the latest iPhone, etc. Which is frankly our, our competitors that didn't exist 20 years ago when when I was first selling. Right. So that that's the fun part. Yep. That is a pretty interesting statistic. The growth is now half a GDP, whereas it used to be double GDP. But you've worked in, I mean, how many markets have you worked in now? Uh, well, I've, China I've, I've lived and worked in, uh, in 10, uh, and I've, I've visited about uh, 80 countries on work. So, so yeah. tru- truly yeah. a global perspective here. So, is, I mean, is that a, a global statistic, or is that something that's, you know, I, I would imagine there's regional you know, differences. In there that. are regional differences, but that's the global average. Frankly, even if you look at Asia, which is the CPG industry is growing faster, but the GDP is growing faster there as well. So it kind of holds true. The younger consumers are looking more for experiences. They're getting married later. They're buying houses later. Therefore, the kind of products that we use and sell, uh, that we that we market and sell, may not be the first thing they're looking for. If you're staying with your mom and dad still when you're, you know, when you're 30 years old versus having two kids and a, and a home to, to stock up with the consumer goods, uh, there is going to be a difference. So that, that's just kind of uh, some of the dynamics that we're seeing. And largely it holds true across the world. So consumers, younger consumers are looking more for experiences. So it means we have to make our products more and more interesting for them and more and more relevant to what they, what they need, uh, which is, which is uh, the challenge for, for all marketers. Yeah. So... Under your um, your job description, as it's you know posted online, I'm sure everybody yeah, every job description there's the like the public version and then there's what happens in reality. But your you know official job description includes building a strong network of shopper insights and analytics expertise. You know analytics expertise seems to be so you know such a hot commodity today, and these insights are so important for what you were just talking about, which is that targeting the right consumer, you know, doing sort of exponentially more complicated work to reach those consumers. And obviously, you know, J&J is going to have some of that data. Your customers are going to have some of that data. Like, it's everywhere. Right. But who can use it to the most, you know, the greatest effect? So um, I'm curious just what, you know, what you're thinking about from a prioritization standpoint. Like, when it comes to getting to those insights, what can you share with our listeners about how to think about it? Well, the interesting thing is that, you know, in the past, consumer companies did have more insights on the consumer. And the retailers, frankly, didn't have a lot because they were busy operating their stores and running the stores, didn't have a lot of data systems. Today, that has shifted because of loyalty cards and uh, a lot more transaction data that that the retailers have. They have a lot more insights into their customers. So that means the challenge on companies like us is, even more in terms of we we better bring in the insights on the category right because the retailer is not going to be looking so deeply into the particular categories we sell they have a lot of categories to sell so we have to be the experts on what are shoppers doing in the categories in which we operate so that we can help them build a plan that they would not have built by themselves and that's kind of where our focus is is what are consumers doing when they go shopping in our category how is the interactions between the digital world and the real brick and mortar world colliding together. I mean, there's this great cartoon that I think of is where the consumers walking their shopping basket through the stores and you have all these big signage and telling her about the deals on store and she's busy look, looking at a, at a self, cell phone and not looking at any of those traditionally real prime real estate that you would buy in the store to get your message to the, to the shopper. Uh, so how do you recognize that and, and reach her when it's most relevant? And we, we are doing a lot of research to understand that shopper context, you know, in shopper context uh, understanding. What does she look at? And there's a lot of shopper psychology work that exists today, you know. We know, for instance, that shoppers first deselect before they select because there's way too much uh, out there. So almost the first thing they do is rule out what's not 
in the consideration set and then, and then zero in on, on what they're really looking for. And it's this paradox of choice. I mean, more and more manufacturers and retailers want to bring more items and more variety to the consumer at a time when the consumer is probably a bit overwhelmed with that and is actually looking for, help me make this choice. There's great research which shows that if you offer the consumer 23 different varieties of jam, she's less likely to buy than if you offer six varieties of jam because she now can kind of distinguish. It's and, overwhelming. And if yes. it's 23, yeah. yeah. So, so, but that's not easy because, uh, you know, you do want to bring that latest innovation of, okay, this is the next great flavor or ingredient. But we've got to also do a good job of curating and, and making sure we're eliminating at the same time as we're bringing in new. That's part of our shopper understanding approach as well. How do you make this shopping easier for the consumer? Because in a world where everything is getting more complicated, they do want that to be easier. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's both online and offline colliding together and making that choice easier as well, which is a new, new dynamic. Well, and in many ways, that's the, the new direct brands. That's usually what they're offering is right. you know, like one skew. Right. <laughs> you either buy it or you don't. All right, the yeah. simplicity of that. So Very often. So you mentioned, uh, and I love the visual you know, of the consumer walking through the store on right. her phone and ignoring all of the shopper marketing displays around her, right? So what amount of emphasis in terms of your thinking as you're looking forward i mean how, what amount of emphasis are you placing on maybe the e-commerce side versus the brick and mortar side of your business i love the way alibaba has recently been talking about it, it was this they say there is no e-commerce there is new retail and new retail is basically you know what many people would call omnichannel this is and and that frankly is is the way it may not be the case everywhere but it will increasingly be the case is as more retailers who are brick and mortar go online and frankly online retailers are buying uh, you know brick and mortar stores I mean uh, whether it's Amazon buying Whole Foods or Alibaba starting their own stores uh, you know some of the most fascinating brick and mortar stores in in Shanghai and in, in China called Herma uh, where you can get product at the store or you can have it delivered at home in 30 minutes or less so, you know, that's the new retail which uh, we're getting to where the consumer doesn't think about it as I'm online, I'm offline. They're looking at it from I want convenience, I want uh, good value and price, and, uh, you know, I want it seamless. I see it on, on my phone and I want to buy it in the store. I should be able to. Don't give me two different SKU assortments and, and confuse me. Equally, if I see it in store and decide, well, I'd rather have it delivered at home, I should be able to do that. So that's the world, which is, again, challenging for, for manufacturers and for retailers to meet this ever-evolving, demanding consumer. But uh, she's going there, so we better follow. I don't right. think we have a choice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> It's interesting the you know the point about the sort of digital native or you know like online first companies are now launching their physical retail stores and right. in many cases um, when they do that they say it's so that they can get a different you know touch point with the consumer understand what the consumer is picking up and you know get a different look into basically different insights different analytics about the consumer than what their mobile app or their website is telling them. It's, I feel like it's every month I'm seeing some new technology that is supposed to be the next great thing in how we understand how shoppers shop. You've got eye tracking software. You've got, you know, things that connect to your beacon of your phone when you walk within a certain distance of a drugstore. And, like, then it follows so your foot, next. you know, this and that. And, like, right. And there's, there's, there's displays that, like, you know, like react to you. And um, none of them ever seem to really take hold. What is a technology, or is there a technology, that you're particularly excited about? So first of all, I, we do a fair amount of eye tracking, and that's good learning. I, I wouldn't say it's scalable, but it helps us to more easily understand what the shopper is doing in, an, in a learning phase. So, so we do a lot of research with shoppers with, with eye tracking technology, which used to be very clunky, is now much, much, much easier to, to use. So, so that really helps to understand what is the consumer looking at, what is she deselecting, what is she you know, zeroing on, uh, what's that sweet spot on the shelf, etc. So 
uh, I would say that's been useful for us uh, in, a, in a learning phase, but yeah, scaling up is a challenge. We're quite excited about the opportunity in virtual reality, perhaps even more augmented reality. You're right, it's not yet scaled up to a point where we think it's uh, you know, fully functional or easy to use, but we believe that it will be. Uh, or maybe I believe that it will be, and uh, I could be proved wrong, as I've been many times before. Because if you think about it, one of the things you need to do to get the consumer into the store is to enhance the experience. You know, if, I, if I'm going to the store, in the past it was a chore, I had to go, I didn't have an option. Now, if you want me not to buy online, but go into a store, I need to have something more than just product which looks, you know, shelf from top to bottom and hard to navigate. Uh, I need to have a good, good experience and, and something that's a little bit delightful and uh, retail tenement if, in a way, you know, to make it exciting. So I think augmented reality and, and uh, things like that could enhance that experience without it becoming too expensive. Because one, obviously, you can create in-store theater, but it's expensive in uh, the real estate that it operates in. But perhaps virtual reality is, is one way to kind of straddle the two, is, mm -hmm. is uh, what I think is, is perhaps a, an opportunity for the future. Yeah. Still be scaled. That is, that is very exciting. Now, I'm, I'm picturing these two things. You've got your consumer who's, who's sort of now got blinders on in the aisle, right? Because she's looking at her phone, right? But... Meanwhile, we also see that digital advertising is starting to underperform, right. right? People have banner blindness. Now they don't even see the ads online either. So as these blinders are coming up, right? And in the meantime, the disruption in the advertising industry between DVR, paid you know, streaming of content, um, et cetera, where's the future of this going? How do we reach consumers and get them into the store to buy something? Like what, what are the new, what, you know, what do you see as sort of the next wave of how we actually get people in there? It's probably easier said than done, but I think it is, it is back to kind of good storytelling, right? I mean, we, we know that when you're telling a good story, whether it's digital or, or, or not, the consumer's more likely to pay attention. The, the challenge is, is no doubt there, right? They're easily distracted. Uh, they've got a million things that they can go to. Uh, but it's almost like making a speech. It's like, okay, I've got, I've got a short period of time to get this audience hooked and have them interested in what I've got to say. Otherwise, they're going to go to the distractions that are easily available. I think that's true of our of our digital marketing that we have to create, but also of the shopping experience. And uh, the good news is you can experiment a lot and learn. Uh, you know, I like the pop-up store kind of approach where you can test different things as what, what really works and what doesn't with this consumer in an environment that you can then try to scale up. It's really about how do I tell the story in a more compelling way uh, because otherwise they've got a million distractions that they can quickly get to and uh, it's both in the store or online I've got to make sure that the, that my brand story or my proposition is is compelling and when it is you you do have people watch it I mean people are sitting and and also at the same time watching 10 episodes of a TV serial in a weekend right so when they're they're hooked, they seem to be able to. Put All that of a sudden, they can focus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've well, done it's a great myself. example. <laughs> yeah, it's a great example, right? Storytelling precedes anything that exists in the modern economy. That's right. right? It, it's old-fashioned. It's you know back to our neurological kind of uh, evolution that we you know we are taken in by stories. And, uh, and the question is, how do you make it a compelling story? One of the things that um, is a challenge, right, when you're trying to tell a brand story is, of course, for global brands, those stories are going to be interpreted in different ways in different parts of the world. The same is true for employees, right? So you run a global organization. You have employees in markets all around the world. How do you keep them all on the same page? Uh, I think repetition helps. It's, it's repetition with a, with a twist. You can't tell the same story five different times and, and, and people will start rolling their eyes. But, but if, you, if you're telling the same story with a creative twist in it and 
a different engagement. Uh, I, I think we sometimes underestimate how we, because we invented that strategy, we think everybody knows it. And if I say it again, people are going to get bored. And that's true of our advertising often as well. We think about it the same way. But in reality, they've got many other things to do and you're, you're, not, you're not the star of their show. You're the, you're the secondary cast member uh, at, at best. So if you keep that in mind and then you, you try to make sure that they are centered in the story and you tell it about them, you know, why is this important to you? You know, as we, for instance, try to make sure our sales team understands the new skills they need to build in this new world. Uh, why is it important for them? Not just for, for the company or for what we're trying to achieve, but for them as well. Uh, that's going to be far more interesting to them and, and they're going to stop and listen than if it's about, well, the business needs you to learn the skill. So, so it's, it's, it's also about making sure that they're the center of it. They're the star. It's about you and uh, you know why this will help you to succeed in, in the future. And the skills people need to, to develop is not easy because they have to be kind of whole brain. I mean, this analytical approach, but also this creative approach. If they're only one or the other, they're not going to be able to, to deliver what they need to deliver. So it's, 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 it's definitely a higher expectation. So I'm curious, are there any resources you would recommend for somebody that's trying to figure that these new skills out are there any are there books are there courses are there is there podcasts people should listen to a website they should go to any anything you think of as a resource to develop this modern skill set I, I think the the most important skill in all of this is kind of this learning agility you know and uh, when people ask me what's the most important skill to succeed in the future you know my my kids uh, ask me that it's like you know, just be a lifelong learner. I, for instance, you know, there's a there's a monthly Amazon podcast which where they bring up what's the latest with Amazon, how's it work. I attend that religiously. If I don't, if I miss it, I catch a, a replay. But even if I'm the chief customer officer, I've got to know what's going on in that world. So I put aside time for learning. This, this actually happened about 15 years ago when I had the privilege to attend a Stephen Covey workshop. And he himself led that workshop. I, I, sat, I came in early because I was so excited. And he came early as well and he sat down and he introduced himself to me. And I was like, wow. At that seminar he said, if you're not reading a business book a week, a week, you're falling behind. And that was a wake-up call for me. But I ha I'm proud to say that after that, I've read a business book a week ever since, and that's 15 years. Uh, if I miss a week, then I read two books in, in a week in which I'm traveling more or I'm on vacation. And it's a business book. It's not a novel. So novels are on top. But uh, that has always been a great example of, you know, you've got to sharpen the saw because there's so much new stuff happening. That was 15 years ago. Today, I think it's even more demanding. There's more stuff happening in the last one year than, you know, yeah. in, the, in the previous 10. I think it's about, are you ready to learn with a humble approach that you don't have all the answers and, and really put the time to it, which means scheduling it? Because I think a lot of time people have good intentions, but uh, it doesn't get executed. So right, you I, would I, I believe in my calendar. how big the stack of business books is that I have not read. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've got to say, I've got more books than I will probably ever read in my life uh, lifetime, but uh, it, it's great to have them there, and I, I do read quite a bit of them, uh, but I will never re end up reading all of them. So the Stephen Covey um, conference is a great anecdote. Um, you've also worked closely with Anthony Rose on Break the Ceiling, Touch the Sky, a leadership summit dedicated to the advancement of women in executive positions. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how you got involved with that project and, you know, why it's important to you? I mean, diversity is, has always been important to me, in particular gender diversity. And really because I worked in a, in a field, sales, which tends to be more male-dominated. And, and particularly where I've spent a lot of time in Asia, even more so. It's hard to get women. I hired the first women salespeople in PNG in India. And I remember the first woman really asked me some tough questions because she was going to be one of 500 salespeople. 
and the only woman. So I'm glad to say that because of her, others followed and it became, you know, today pretty much almost 50-50. But it's always therefore been an important area for me. Uh, Anthony has been a, a, you know, a friend for a long time, a colleague back at PNG, and and someone you know I admire greatly for his uh, true commitment to the to the purpose and to the cause. And so, I was there in his very first summer summit. Uh, I was the MC for his his first summit. I was uh, on the first panel in that summit, and I, I've tried to be at as many of them as possible because he truly is committed to it. He gets some of the finest leaders to that summit, both women and men leaders. And the most important thing is there's no PowerPoint. There's no slides. There's just people being real, being authentic, uh, talking about their experiences. And I've picked up more insights there on, on, uh, on, on how women lead and how women want to be uh, managed and led. Than, than almost anywhere else. So, uh, you know, it, it truly is a, is a fantastic thing that he does. That's interesting. No PowerPoint. No PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> now, so, I once heard Farid Zakaria uh, say that people who use PowerPoint have rarely the power and they never get to the point. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Unfortunately, I think probably many of the people listening to this podcast use PowerPoint as a primary communication tool, but I actually believe most of them would also agree with you. Right. Yeah. And we've had a great uh, conversation without any PowerPoint. Yeah, right. Right? yeah exactly. So, <laughs> so recently, uh, J&J was honored by LinkedIn as one of the top uh, 50 most sought after companies to work for. I'm curious, does J&J being an employer of choice like that how does it, does it or how does it you know, sort of improve your conversations with customers? Do customers care? Uh, I, I think they do. I think they, they don't bring it up much because uh, it's, it's a bit in the nature of customer-client relationships that uh, you, you don't want to give too much credit uh, to the other party. But I, I think they, they actually respect you know, the credo and the values that we have and also the kind of organization. I mean, uh, to me, when I started this job, I actually went around and and asked a lot of our customers questions about what we could do to improve. But uh, one of the last questions I asked each of them in those first few months was, if you had to describe the J&J person you're dealing with the most, how would you describe them? And one of the the descriptions was, you know, value-based, which was a great... A testimony to because I think if you build that trust as the as the basis of the relationship, then we can get to a, a good outcome. Uh, if that trust is not there, you know it's very hard to build a good buyer seller relationship. So I, I was quite fascinated that so many of them either use that that word or a variation of that word, uh, and I, and I thought it was a good example of what the company really is all about. That's a great example. So in the interest of learning and, you know, humility, etc., besides J&J, what's another company that you admire, you know, or think maybe you could learn from in terms of how they partner with customers or manage their brands or, you know, what's another company that you admire? Well, I won't talk about P&G, which I worked with for many years, because I would say the fact that I stayed there for so long uh, is is a testimony to, you know, I, th- I think they're very good at it, and uh, the people are uh, genuine believers as well in, in uh, true cus- customer partnerships. Actually, I, I think uh, a lot of the companies that, that I see in our space, you know, truly epitomize that that partnership principle. I think many of our retailers as well believe truly in partnership. I think they understand that we can put two and two and make five rather than you know argue about are you putting two or are you putting a little less than two into the equation. You know, so we have great relationships with all of our retailers. I think all of them believe in partnership. There are times in which it doesn't feel that way, I'm sure, for them with us and we with them. But but largely, I, I believe that uh, most companies of our size understand that this is, this is important. Uh, these retailers 
have a direct relationship with their consumers in a, in a big way. They spend the consumer spends time in the stores. They they often love the brand that they shop in. Uh, they members of that loyalty club in in many cases, and and for them it's as much of a brand as you know our brands are. And so if we can put those two together, we we get to a much better place than if we argue about the divide of the spoil, so to speak. So. Uh, there's a lot. I, I think you learn from every company. Uh, you know, I've I have colleagues who we brought into J and J from Colgate, which is another great execution company that's very good at partnering with customers. We have uh, folks from Coca-Cola who I think have, over many decades, uh, you know, understood how to w- work with customers and build relationships. So. Uh, you know, we, we look for the right talent to bring into the company. You know, it's, it's more important about that individual and what they bring, because I think most companies give them the platform to succeed. The question is, not everyone does. So, you know, we want to f- identify those individuals that can tie into the J&J values, values as much, build a relationship with our customers and, and have that kind of trust. I mean, I, I don't want to bring someone in that the customer changes their perception of well, J&J is a company where people are values-based, right? So mm-hmm. that, that my, my number one watch out uh, when I'm recruiting is to make sure that people will reflect those hard-earned principles that, that we stand for. And maintain that mind. trust you and mentioned a minute ago. Yeah. So I only have one other question for you, and then I'm curious if there's anything else you think we should have talked about that we haven't sure. touched on. But So the question is, um, it's related to global perspective and the importance of international experience in a variety of markets in um, sort of shaping your personal leadership style and then how you would, what advice you would give to the next generation of leaders. And the reason that I'm positioning it that way is because oftentimes we're told in order to be you know, a successful leader in a large company like a J&J, you need to have that experience in multiple markets and, you know, et cetera, especially for people born in America to not be Amerocentric. But you've worked in a lot of places, 10 countries, you said, right? Uh, plus all of your travel. What's the right balance to strike there? And, and how has that global perspective shaped your pers- your personal approach? And what advice would you give to the next generation? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's there's benefits, pros and cons of uh, of, you know, different career choices in terms of, uh, you know, I have great friends who've never moved out of their hometown, you know, made that choice that this is really important to me. I'm going to build my career where I am. And then obviously having traveled a lot, I've seen a lot of people that have made a different choice like I have. You know, you're always biased by your own experience. So I, I'm, I'm never quite sure that, okay, this is the right approach just because I it, it worked for me. I can say that the advantages of the path I chose was that you do get out of your comfort zone a lot more. And I think, therefore, you are forced to learn a lot because of being out of your comfort zone. So I think when you, when you create stress, there's a chance to learn. And, and when you relocate and start working in a new environment where you have to understand the culture, different people, that really is a compressed stress challenge. Uh, and it's both on the business and the personal front because your family is also relocating. They're going through their own challenges. And in many cases, sometimes even more because they may not have the friends that you have straight away at work. But, uh, you know, they've got to kind of leave school, give up their friends at school and make new friends in, in a new school, etc. But, but I, I believe that that's a benefit uh, because you're put under stress and you do learn from it. And is, you should avoid it being too stressful. One of the things I tell people is don't take a new level or a higher level, a new country and a new company at the same time. Uh, I think those all three together is probably too much stress. If you're going with the same company, that gives you a level of comfort if you're, you know, going into a new job, but it's in the same company, that's not as pressured. But if you kind of have the trifecta of all three stresses at the same time, that perhaps is, is too much. So it's, it's about how do you moderate that? But there are plenty of benefits. I mean, my, my kids have had great experience of living in different cultures, understanding them, 
my son speaks uh, Mandarin uh, like a native, and, and that's uh, you know something that I believe will give him an advantage later in life as uh, China you know becomes more and more interconnected with the world and, and a critical part of uh, doing business in in the world. So uh, there are pluses. There's there's definitely challenges and stresses, and I think the key is to to not stress yourself beyond a point, but also make sure you're not stressing yourself too little, because I think in that case, you may not be learning enough, right? So you can do that even in your, in your own, you know, even if you choose not to relocate, how do you create a bit of learning opportunity, right? Take up a, a new skill and like one of the things I did when I turned 40 was to, to start to learn to play the piano. I never played it before. I didn't do a very good job of it, but it really st stressed me out because I was learning in China. The teacher was very strict. She would wrap me on the knuckles uh, with a ruler when I got it wrong. Uh, but it was a great experience because I got to understand, uh, you know, how music is thought in China, why, why they're so good. Because you don't want to make the mistake when you're getting your knuckles wrapped. Uh, so, you know, those are experiences that I think you get a chance to, uh, you know, if you you don't have to do it in a new location, but you should try to find new ways of doing things, I believe. That's very, very, very interesting. Thank you. What about, is there anything else that you think, uh, you know, is an interesting topic or trend right now that maybe we haven't touched on that you think people be, would like to hear about? Uh, one thing for me is fascinating is the, is the pace of change, right? I mean, it's, uh, we think it's accelerating tremendously, but, you know, you think, to your kids and I went for a college seminar for my son who was only in the ninth grade but they're already starting to talk about college and the college counselor said that the research shows that this batch of kids when they graduate will have 11 different jobs not assignments not but different career jobs I was like I don't know if that's true but even if it's halfway true or a third true that's an extreme pace of change, right? Yeah. So uh, I think, you know, this, this whole thing of we think the pace of change has never been as fast as it is today, can, is, it looks like it will only accelerate. So how is the uh, younger generation, people like you and, you know, uh, others going to deal with that is, is going to be fun to watch. So I'll be retired having a beer on the beach somewhere, but uh, <laughs> watching with a great deal of interest. Well, I guess that reinforces the importance of getting out of your comfort zone and building learning agility as a skill. Chester, thank you so much. Appreciate um, we appreciate your time, and I'm sure all of our listeners are going to appreciate these insights as well. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>